This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst and author John P. Dorley, who also happens to be a Roman Catholic priest and a professor of religion. Today I had the honor of speaking with him about his book, The Illness That We Are, A Jungian Critique of Christianity, published by Inner City Books. He was ordained in 1964 and holds licentiates in philosophy and theology, as well as a master in theology from St. Paul University in Ottawa and an MA from St. Michael's College at the University of Toronto. Professor Dorley graduated with a PhD in theology from Fordham University in New York, where his thesis work was on Paul Tillich and Bonaventure, which led through Tillich to an interest in Jungian psychology. He is also Professor Emeritus of the Religion Department of Carleton University, where he taught at St. Patrick's College from 1970 to 79, and then at Carleton University from 1979 to 2001. During that time, he became a Jungian analyst, having earned a diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich in 1980. He's written extensively on Jung and religion. His three additional titles with Inner City Books are Psyche a Sacrament, a Comparative Study of C.G. Jung and Paul Tillich, Love, Celibacy, and the Inner Marriage, and A Strategy for a Loss of Faith, Jung's Proposal. More recently, he's published three volumes with Routledge, Paul Tillich, Carl Jung, and the Recovery of Religion, On Behalf of the Mystical Fool, Jung on the Religious Situation, and Jung and His Mystics, In the End It All Comes to Nothing. Professor Dorley has also lectured widely in Jungian and academic circles, addressing the plenary sessions of the International Association for Analytical Psychology in Barcelona, Cape Town, Montreal, and Copenhagen. In recent summers, he's made presentations to Jungian conferences at the University of Cambridge and at Yale. He currently maintains a small practice in Ottawa and continues to be interested in the relation of the human psyche and psychology to religious experience and the religions. So, Professor Dorley, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Well, it's good to be here. I heard that you and Daryl Sharp knew each other as young boys in Ottawa, and then, years later, ran into each other in the training program in Zurich. What's the story? Yeah, well, when I was uh, an early teenager, this would be uh, it would be sometime before 1952. I probably was 13, 14, 15. The family used to have a cottage in a, a suburb uh, to, to the um, west of Ottawa. It was called Britannia. And it was on a part of the Ottawa River, and uh, basically it was a summer cottage uh, community. There was uh, one streetcar line that went all the way out to to Britannia and so forth. So in, in those early teenage years, uh, my family would move out there, and one of the summers we were there, uh, there'd be kind of a residual gang, you know, of, of either of, of summer summer kids or, or some of the kids, I think, live there year-round and in, uh, in more substantial homes. One of the summers, I met uh, Darl and Dwayne, who were for a while living uh, in Britannia, 
and we would have been friends that summer. I think they were twins, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but I remember very, very well meeting them there and actually being in, in uh, Darrell's uh, home. It was between the major highway and the the river, but right on the highway or very close to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I can remember being in his summer house, and uh, we would have been together that summer. Now, Darrell uh, says that he moved away shortly. I, I just remember really one summer where... Uh, the two sharps were close. Were part of the <laughs> the, the gang, as it were. You right. know. Uh, but he, some of the stuff he remembers is uh, very striking. Like, like basically, it's, um, it was right on the river, or yeah, and he'd be kind of like two short blocks from the river. So I I knew Darl in in those years. I'd say it would be uh, it was sometime prior to 1952. And then uh, in 1974, the first year I was in Zurich, uh, I, I remember we were at the Young Institute offices there. They were in Gemeindestrasse in those years. And and uh, th- this person walked up and, and said he was Daryl Sharp. And I said, well, did you have a brother named Dwayne? Dwayne was the name of the brother. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, you know. And it just turned out that uh, what uh, had a relationship prior to 1952 came back in 1974, 22 years later, you know. And so we got to be great friends then in uh, in Zurich. And uh, when he began Inner City Press, uh, he he began publishing my stuff, and I was pretty grateful, you know. Uh, that he was able to do that actually it helped me at the university immensely. I was given a full professorship basically on, uh, well, I shouldn't say basically, but a, a part of that was uh, the publication of my first work with Inner City Publication. It was uh, entitled uh, The Psyche is Sacrament, mm-hmm. uh, Young and Tillich. So... Um, yeah, there's an old, old relationship uh, that goes back a long ways. So today I'd like to discuss your book, The Illness That We Are, A Jungian Critique of Christianity. In the book, you mention that Jung stated the genesis of religious experience and the Christian God and all the pagan gods and goddesses is within the human psyche, even if beyond the ego's manipulation or control. Would you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that uh, Jung understood the psyche as uh, naturally uh, creating uh, the the experiences that lead uh, humanity to its uh, universal belief in God, whatever uh, form uh, or variation those beliefs might take. And I think that this is uh, true of um, of all of the religions, including the uh, monotheisms, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam. And that um, he also is very appreciative of the Eastern religion and attributed to it a greater and more immediate sense of human interiority than prevails 
in the uh, in the West, and I think he also um, uh, understands the psyche to be creating the religions in such a way that there may be a discernible pattern in their creation, like in a couple of places in his collective works, he he will say that uh, religion in its evolution seems to have followed this path that the many gods, the polytheistic religions, mm-hmm. uh, became one god, the monotheisms, and that that one god became man. And and uh, obviously the reference to the one God becoming man would go to Christianity, but he goes on then to imply that when the one God became man, every man, that is every individual of both genders, was uh, called upon to uh, activate the the divine potential within themselves. And uh, th- this is this process of activation of one's personal divinity, I, I think, is at the core of the maturational process he describes as individuation. So that I, I think that's what uh, Jung would would mean. Just to add to that, I think he um, would go beyond restricting religion to what is obviously religious or, or um, what, would be, what would be obviously described as our religion. Uh, he extends it beyond that to any community that is bonded by archetypal powers. And uh, so he would include there what he calls the isms. And I think what he's saying in terms of history is that the the period of the Enlightenment, like seventeenth, uh, eighteenth, nineteenth century, um, more or less uh, refuted the the idea of of divinity as as realities beyond the the human psyche, and that uh, what what he sees then is that. Uh, the, the divinity is considered as external to the psyche, internalized themselves, and became the basis of political faith. What had previously been identifiably religious uh, faith, say, say in uh, the Jewish, Christian, or Islamic tradition, uh, internalized and became the basis of political faith and the tensions that previously existed between the monotheistic faiths and still do, as is evident in the in the media, uh, became uh, lethal conflicts between political faiths and indeed between anything that ends in ISM, for instance, communism, fascism, mm-hmm. capitalism, uh, and, and so forth. So I, I think... Uh, his understanding of religion is very profound in terms of the specific identifiable religions, but that he extends it now to any community that is bonded by the archetypal powers that previously took on the form of uh, discrete divinities and now take on the form of uh, political commitment and and that the the body count in both uh, instances, 
uh, is still on the rise if we look at uh, ISIL and so forth, you know? Right. So uh, I think what he's saying about the current uh, evolution of religion is that it's reached the point where humanity uh, has created the gods by, by projecting these internal powers and communities have been formed around uh, those projections and that he's calling upon people now to recover the projection and to come back to the uh, realize well I say come back to, to come to realize that the basis of divinity uh, lies in the powers within themselves and that effectively a successful religion as a projection of these powers would be successful only to the extent that those projections be withdrawn and related to directly as powers within oneself. Uh, like uh, in a very dramatic uh, statement, he says that we're finally uh, coming to realize that everything that is is divine, and mm -hmm. last but not least, the human. You said that Jung's attitude offers a hope to humanity far beyond anything at present available through any single religious tradition. Uh, yeah, I think it does in the sense that uh, while it appreciates each religion as a very significant expression of the powers that dwell within the, the soul, he's also uh, relativizing those expressions in a way that uh, religions might find it difficult to do. For instance, the three monotheisms claim, each claim that they possess the one true and, and universal God. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think what Jung would be saying is that uh, they are three variants of the same myth, and that to the extent that we come to realize that, uh, they, they can still provide a lot to human consciousness, but Jung would divest them to any claims of an exclusive ultimacy uh, to the right to say that uh, this is the one and, and uh, only religion. Yeah. And I think I'll, you'd say something like that, perhaps to the to the East. Although it gets complex, there are times he can be. Read, I think, by and large, in general, he could be read to say that that the East, from the outset, uh, seems to have been more uh, introverted in this sense that the East seems to have been graced with a more natural and widespread understanding. Of the, of the location of the divine as within the human. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, you know, if you get into uh, Atman Brahman thinking, and at least in some of its variants, they'll use the image of fire, and, and Young thinks that in that context, the, the, uh, the fire uh, relates to the same use of fire in certain Gnostic and alchemical traditions to refer to the power of the, the inner God. But in some of the Eastern traditions, the idea is that the Atman, as, as a personal power or personal flame, becomes a universal power. And I think Jung has assimilated uh, that idea into his uh, understanding of the psyche, so that 
the relationship to one's personal divinity involves in and of itself a relationship to the totality because one's personal inhesion in the divine uh, is in the same source that has expressed itself beyond the individual like in the human community and in nature itself. Mm -hmm. The first chapter of the book is called Jung's Ambivalence Toward Christianity. Uh You said that Jung accuses Christianity of, quote, making people ill. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I I think... uh in, in in this case, he, the, one of my other favorites is the theologian Paul Tillich. And in, in this case, uh, uh, I think he, he resonates a bit with Tillich. Like Tillich, in talking about faith, will say something like this, that if you ask of the believer a literal understanding of what the scriptures say and do not take them symbolically, then you can break that person's mind, you know. Mm -hmm. They they have to uh, accept as literal historical truth what is effectively a form of very profound poetry, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are further uh, further ways of looking at that kind of statement. Like he, he saw his own father struggling with his faith, and uh, Young didn't have that faith in that that sense, you know. And he would ask his father, "Well, uh, how do you get this faith? Like, like where is it?" Uh, because basically, uh, his father's faith was non-experiential. Like the the statements of of faith did not resonate as they would with Young with the deeper levels of the psyche or be seen as expressions of the deeper levels of of the psyche. They simply would be be kind of bald, unintelligible, self-contradictory statements to Mm -hmm. which the mind was asked to bow. And uh, Young implies that his father, who was a minister, in uh, and, and trying to do that, you know, manipula- manipulated uh, his own humanity against his own, own best interests, and that the efforts to exclude doubt from what I, I call, from what Jung called a sacrosanct unintelligibility, a sacred, a sacred meaninglessness, may have contributed to his father's early demise, you know? Ah, interesting. Yeah, uh, a depression in in, in effect, uh, and and the alternative for for Jung would be uh, to to use the symbols to see the religious uh, statements, the statements that are, are supposed to be accepted on faith, as statements of um, uh, of of the collective unconscious in which we all share, and as bearers of the energies that those symbols should carry. So that the symbol, rather than uh, uh, mediating the energies of the unconscious, is is set up against uh, the mind and reason and, and the intellect and uh, breaks the person, you know? Mm-hmm. Is this why you say religion had lost its ear for the symbolic language? Yeah, I, I think that's at the heart of uh, Young's critique of at least the Western religions. They take themselves uh, 
literally and uh, historically. Yeah, you said that Jung went to great lengths to show how the major Christian motifs are all expressions of the psyche seeking fulfillment in patterns of individual wholeness and communion. I think there's a a distinct uh, teleology and Jung's understanding of the psyche and of psychic development, I think both uh, textually and and the, the analysts can see that in practice, the the uh, self as the uh, guiding power within the the psyche works toward what I've come to call personal integration. That is, it it tries to bring the many many complexes, the many. Um, relatively autonomous centers of energy within the psyche into a supportive and energizing relationship with the ego as understood as one complex among many so that that integration in this sense would imply that you might say the many become one or that the psyche moves into a situation where consciousness is, is uh, more or less at one with and fed by the energies that are always at work in the unconscious and are called the complexes. And it's only when uh, one or other or perhaps many of these complexes gain a certain autonomy and take on a, a, unilater- or, yeah, a unilateral or singular power that, that you have a kind of uh, tyranny within the unconscious can be called a split off or dissociation or whatever, where a part tends to take over the the whole. And I I think that the self is the, uh, Young in one place calls it the spiritus rector, like the rectifying spirit or the the directive spirit, works uh, against such kind of uh, inner dictatorship and and tries to uh, strike a balance of, of moving all of these complexes uh, together and and uh, that togetherness then is is united with with consciousness and that uh, you might say that's at the personal level but I, I think the second uh, note in the, the teleology of maturation mm-hmm. is a greater relatedness like like if, if it was just uh, getting into personal integration it could split the person off from one's uh, surrounding and I think that what Jung is saying, especially when he uses uh, a phrase that, that uh, Tillich also uses, that um, uh, the he calls it the unus mundus, the one world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the symbol uh, used is the unus mundus, the one world. But what he means by it is that we mo- as we move into ourselves in this kind of what I've called integration, our relationship with the beyond... Uh, I, I don't mean beyond this world. I mean the relationship with that which is external okay. to our individuality uh, is also enhanced, and that that would take on the form of uh, uh, compassion. I notice the, the Pope in his recent visit to the States is, is talking about compassion. Well, uh, I, I think that Young sees this universal compassion as a major note in the process of individuation. And, and his reason for doing so is that as, as the individual moves into one's own interiority, uh, the individual intersects with the ground of all that is, and therefore is able 
to to embrace all that is in a, in a, in a much fuller and spontaneous way than it's uh, what one is uh, kind of caught within the prison of one's individuality. So that that the movement inward and the movement outward are really two two sides of the same process. This is the way I've come to see it, you know? Like they say of mystics, a journey inward is a journey outward. I think Young is very much onto that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, I think that's where I would be on that, yeah. So repeatedly in the book, you point out that Jung saw the unconscious as the seat of religion and therefore a potential source of healing. And uh, that that was part of his ambivalence toward Christianity. Yeah, well, that gets into uh, uh, other elements of, of his uh, understanding of the development of, of the religious instinct. Uh, uh, up to and including the development of Christianity, and uh, yeah, like going there is uh, opens up a whole lot of other uh, questions. It brings up the the question of uh, the relationship of the Trinity to what Jung calls the the quaternity, and uh, this may be getting into very deep waters, but I might be. I might be able to explain it a little bit. Like he, like Young was very, very interested in in the Trinity when he came across it first. There's a section in Memory, Dreams, and Reflections where his father was catechizing him, or getting him ready for his confirmation. Mm-hmm. And, and Young found his his father's uh, teaching very boring. And then he looked ahead and he saw, "Oh, we're coming to the Trinity." Now there is a true mystery, and uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to this in my catechesis or in my being taught the truths of faith, however you want to put that. And uh, when when they came to that section uh, on the Trinity, his father simply said to him, "Oh well, you know that that's beyond human uh, understanding." And all we do is accept that on faith, you know? And I think that inter, uh, that in, uh, interplay between himself and his father uh, really shows a lot of, of what's going on in Jung's psychology. Like, like Jung's position would be that unless it's uh, grounded experientially in the unconscious, the symbols remain without life, you know, and can be a cause of death. Whereas if they're grounded in the the unconscious, they they bear life with them, you know, and actually exist to lead the believer into this life. So when it comes to uh, the Trinity and his collected works, it's in uh, an amazing essay in volume 11. He he first presents the idea of the Trinity as kind of a, a sparse interpretation of the basic dynamic involved in the psyche. Effectively, the father becomes the unconscious, the son becomes consciousness, and the spirit becomes the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious. So, so you have a, a system of uh, uh, three three moments or, or three uh, points of reference: the, the origin and the father, 
the expression in the sun and the union of the origin with its expression through the Holy Spirit. And and uh, in one of those passages, Young commends the uh, the early ecumenical councils for um, developing the the uh, conception of a trinitarian God uh, because uh, a sparse interpretation of it would, would describe relatively accurately the basic dynamic in the psyche itself and the relationship between unconscious, conscious, and then uh, like in one page he turns the page and he starts off with a, a, a quotation from Plato in which the speaker says, but where is the missing fourth? And see what, what Jung does then, he goes on to say that Though it's its though the Trinity is the basic symbol of Christianity, it does not embrace or include all that is. There's no relationship to the feminine. There's no relationship to matter, and there's no relationship to the devil or or the demonic. Right. So what what. Uh, the psyche is currently urging, in a sense is the birth of a, a newer myth or a newer uh, consciousness to, that would include and sacralize or make sacred what the Trinity tends to exclude, namely the body, the feminine, and the demonic. And this is the move from what uh, I, I well, for many call, I call uh, the shift uh, to a quaternitarian world paradigm or cosmology uh, from a trinitarian cosmology and the implication is and perhaps you can see it perhaps we can see it already in in society you know like uh, in some ways young predicted the feminist uh, movement right uh, it, it's there very strongly in in the exclusion of the feminine from the Trinity, and uh, sometimes I think he goes a little overboard on it, like he, uh, when he deals with the uh, uh, Catholic Declaration of the Assumption, which is made in the 1950s, uh, he'll say what's really being uh, put forth here is the divinization uh, of the feminine, of the earth, and effectively of the unconscious, he would see it as the comp- uh, Mary's assumption into heaven as carrying both the feminine and the material and effectively completing the Trinity, you might say both beyond humanity and, and within human history, because all of the symbols basically relate to relate to what's happening in, in history. And, and so what he does there is, is, is bring together uh, the the feminine and the uh, masculine in, in a quaternitarian universe, and then the other uh, like the spirit and the body uh, in a trinitarian conception are are um, 
not united. The, the, the matter is not present in the symbol of Trinity. Uh, you know, we see all the care now that's being addressed to the to the body and, and taking care of the body and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the the real challenge of quaternitarian thinking is in the assimilation of the the demonic or the uh, the devil or evil. And uh, you know, I think if you follow his pattern of thought in the shift from a from the three to the four, from the Trinity to the uh, quaternity, he's suggesting that ultimately uh, Christ and Satan will have to embrace, you know, mm-hmm. and overcome this absolute op- opposition, which uh, in, in Christianity and its sister monotheisms still causes such tension. I, I, going to other sides of, the, of his uh, psychology, um, uh, what the uh, three what only gods do provide to their constituencies is, is uh, a certitude which perhaps all of us really need, you know, or uh, think we need, or it could be a legitimate need. But when your your access to certitude through a religious faith or any uh, any kind of faith. Uh, it implies that it is other than a commitment to a competing absolute. I don't see how the relationship between those communities can be anything other than inimical, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in our culture, we'll rush, as Young says in a place that I've, I've forgotten where it is, but I, I know it's there somewhere, it, it, that in, in the face of, of, of these catastrophes, say of genocide and so forth, People will and, and continue to bring up all of these uh, other explanations, like the economic, the, the geography, uh, wealth, uh, whatever kind of uh, apparent ec- explanation that some of the, I guess, the social sciences and history and, ec- and so forth can bring up. But what's really at, at stake here is that one sense of ultimacy on which all of us, uh, to some extent, rely, is being questioned. And in the face of that questioning, uh, the only response uh, is, uh, to date as I see it, is to convert or to kill, you know? Right, convert and, or kill, yeah. And in some cases, both. Like, uh, I think, uh, with the First Nations and so forth, uh, we, we effectively... Uh, Try to convert them to our culture, and in doing so, we ultimately kill them. We deprive them of their own native spirituality, mm. and and in doing that, uh, deprive them of the uh, the basis, the support, the ground they needed to um, uh, go on being themselves uh, in the world. You know, <laughs> so I, I think there's an immense amount involved in in Young's move from a Trinitarian to a Quaternitarian uh, cosmology. And I'd advise people who can take it to, or could want to read into it, to go to uh, Volume 11, uh, where there's a really an excellent, uh, an, an excellent lengthy essay on, on all of this and how he understands Trinity and how he critiques it toward uh, a cosmology of much wider embrace. 
I'd like to go back to the three missing aspects of the Trinity you say are the material, the feminine, and the demonic. Uh-huh. And about the missing feminine, you said that Jung declared that the Catholic revivification of the goddess in the form of Mary to be a momentous step. But here's my question. With Mary, and you do point this out in the book, it's only her immaculate aspect that's divinized, and by only a part of the Christian community, not the entire Christian community. So it's only the virginal and the maternal aspects of the feminine. Well, I I wouldn't want to uh, uh, I wouldn't want to confuse uh, the doctrine of the immaculate conception. This is a uh, in the 1850s, and I think from a Jungian perspective, that could be looked at quite differently from the the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven in the 1950s. It's almost a century; they're a century apart, you know. Mm-hmm. And and what Jung is arguing there, the he claims it to be the the greatest uh, religious event since the Reformation. You yes, know? right. He, he overstates that. <laughs> now, all, all of this is in uh, the answer to Job. So, again, if uh, anyone wants to get into the the basis for it, it it's in uh, again the eleventh volume of the collected works uh, under the essay, uh, the answer to Job. And, and uh, what he's what he's trying to get at there is not uh, not not the truth of the immaculate conception. I'd like to go to that in a moment, but sure. but really really uh, what he's trying to get at there is a conception of uh, effectively of the unconscious itself as maternal and as the source of uh, all consciousness. So that when he when he speaks of the unconscious in a personifying manner, the unconscious becomes the great goddess or the great mother, and and he he would feel then that if what he's getting at is that the the great mother is the originating source of all the opposites like matter, spirit, male, female. Uh, good and evil, Christ and and uh, Satan, and that what she does is give birth to the opposites, but that her dynamic is to bring the opposites together in consciousness. So that what he what he's like effectively we're thrown off what he's saying there because even in that essay he he refers to the first power, which forum would be the the unconscious as father, you know, and I think that that uh, term has been part of the patriarchal uh, um, takeover of the of the tradition that that first principle should be a maternal principle, because as he elaborates that she give, uh, she gives birth the the uh, see the maternal unconscious the goddess gives birth to consciousness, the ego, and the ego then sees the opposites, and three of which are, are the ones I've mentioned, the material, spiritual, feminine, masculine, and the demonic, and 
moves the ego to bring about uh, the process of their reunification in consciousness. So he'd be uh, seeing a society in which uh, the uh, split between absolute good and absolute evil uh, would be defeated. He, in terms of the feminine masculine, well, he has a lot on that androgyny and uh, the hermaphrodite and so forth and for young when that uh, when those symbols appear in a mature uh, consciousness uh, he sees them as um, uh, as very sophisticated forms of the unification of the opposites in the individual you know now you've got to you've got to have a look there as an analyst or just as a reader at uh, at, at whether it's a case of lack of differentiation, one doesn't know if one is masculine or feminine, or that one has differentiated the opposites and then brought them together in in one's personal being, and so on and so forth. So, like the 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 idea of uh, the assumption of Mary into heaven get I think bodily get, get, gets at the idea of the goddess who gives rise to embodied consciousness which then sees the opposites which in turn have to be related to her maternity uh, like the the Christ figure and the demonic figure are both expressions of this deeper uh, he calls it the collective unconscious of this deeper generator of consciousness and of the uh, symbols that uh, that appear and the reality that appears around consciousness, as well as these deeper symbolic uh, meanings of of male, female, and and matter and and spirit and so forth, and the process moves to the unification of these opposites. Now, just to confuse it further, the process of the unity of these opposites is uh, in, in what Jung would understand as a kind of a baptism. The ego in the face of the opposites that can tear life apart moves into the the mother or returns to the mother uh, as, as the source of consciousness and of the archetypal opposites that, that can move into consciousness or do move, that consciousness perceives. And in the return to the mother, the conscious moves back into a consciousness which can better unite the opposites than it could prior to the entrance or return to the mother. And that's what Jung means by the transcendent function, that the ego as it suffers between opposites uh, dies or loses itself into the unconscious, hopefully to return to consciousness, and you might say resurrected, with a consciousness that is uh, better able to bring together the opposites that brought about its death into the mother in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is this is what he understands by the answer. He gives the answer to Job. The, the answer to Job is that the Christ figure dies into, it is uh, mm-hmm. despairing on the cross, why have you forsaken me, and so forth, dies into the unconscious, and then... Um, would return to consciousness uh, better able to bring together in itself the opposites that initiated the death, you know? Anyway, that, that, that's the whole, that's the whole story and it may be too much to assimilate 
in, in one paragraph or, or four or five minutes, you know. But just have a word on the Immaculate Conception. The content, the political context uh, in 1850 was that uh, Catholicism was trying to come to terms with democracy, and Pius IX had set up a democratic government or a republic, they called it, in in Rome. And his prime minister was assassinated, so Pius IX fled Rome. And for whatever reason, when he came back, he he proclaimed the uh, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which I, I think had some like a a great historian I had it at at Fortin was saying, you know, that uh, uh, papal declarations, in one way or another, reflect papal intent. And I think that uh, this dogma may have been uh, at the idea, you know, that only Mary was free of original sin. Right. Say, as opposed to Italian Democrats. Ah. Patriots. Okay. <laughs> well, there could be a lot of could be a lot of stuff involved, but I think looking yeah. at reading the mystics and looking at uh, at the doctrine, the Immaculate Conception, I I think it gets. Uh, at, a, at this, there's a point in, in each of us where we are unqualifiedly uh, identified with divinity, and that this uh, point cannot be uh, destroyed. So, so that the truth of the Immaculate Conception is that, uh, in some sense, all of us are immaculately conceived, or are immaculate in so much as some dimension of our being remains implanted in divinity and is beyond corruption in some sense or another. And I think that some of the mystics that I've read, driven by Young, some of the mystics he's pointed me to, effectively go to that point, you know? So anyway, that's maybe beside the point of your question. I'm just looking for a quote here. Uh, you said Jung said that there, for humanity, there is no godless option. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, there is no godless option. Well, uh, again, you know, you could go either to uh, to to Jung or or to Tillich on that. Well, just we'll go to to uh, Jung to take it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. There's no godless option because some uh, power within the unconscious will so relate to consciousness that it it functions effectively as um, a god, you know? Just just let me amplify Jung through through Tillich. Tillich understood faith in psychological terms as ultimate concern. He, He uses the term concern uh, as uh, a synonym for faith, which is at the same time a psychological reality, and he's to some extent there dependent on Schleiermacher, a 19th century, uh, 19th century um, a theologian, who spoke of humanity as having a, a feeling of absolute dependence, a feeling of, of depending on God, and again, feeling and concern are both psychological uh, psychological terms 
And and uh, Tillich, and I think in this sense, Jung is very much with him, Tillich will say that that which concerns us ultimately is the object of our faith and our God, you know? So if you, you were to say to me, well, I don't believe in God. Right. I'd say, well, what are I or you, Jung could say, well, what are you ultimately concerned about? What, 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 what's your real concern? And most people would uh, have to say something. In Canada, we're having an election, and uh, the, the, the concern of most is economics, you know, so that, in effect, that is where their, their heart lies. That's their God. So the ultimate concern is asking the question, what are you ultimately concerned about? And since everybody is usually ultimately concerned about something, the idea would be that uh, a godless option is, is not possible unless one were wholly unconcerned, you know? I used to teach, I used to use the... Uh, the image of the person on the cover of Mad Mad Magazine, you right? Know, yes. Who'd say what me worried? Oh. You know, and and he he had no worries or no concern because he was mad. And uh, I think that uh, Tillich's argument, and to a large extent Young's, is that uh, simply to be alive is to be profoundly concerned, and and in a Jungian context, to be driven to some concern by the power of whatever. Archetypal energy is dominant in your psyche. So that's, I think, is what's behind that. And I think both Young and, and it's from Tillich, but I think Young would agree that, uh, you know, if religion is to be revalidated, uh, the basis of religion itself has to be established, uh, as opposed to arguing on behalf of this or that religion. And I think both Young and, and Tillich do that. They try to establish the basis of religion in in being human itself. Uh, Young would put it into the psyche, and uh, Tillich would put it into uh, to this um, ambiguous relationship to the ultimate as native to humanity. You know. Back to that quote about how humanity does not have a godless option. You uh -huh. said that the energies would simply reappear in some other equally absolute and potentially destructive ism. What did you mean yeah. by that? In the Reformation, there were wars between uh, the Catholic and Reformed side that decimated Europe. I, I was at a, a theological conference in uh, in Frankfurt, and some uh, there were Reformation scholars there, and they say that the the consequences of the religious wars were were so devastating that Europe almost spent a half century or more in, in a state of of collective possession. And one of the uh, ploys to get out of religious warfare was to give a certain dominance to uh, reason. And so you'd see in the, the French Revolution, like the the god la goddess raison, like the the goddess of reason presiding, and and there you would have the transformation uh, from say a conflict between uh, the Catholic God and the Reformed 
God, Lutheran God or Calvinist God or whatever, into the God of reason. And the motivating power behind that was that reason could uh, could endorse a, a consensus or could bring about uh, a, a consensus that would uh, alleviate or, or remove the conflict between these specifically religious positions. And I think that, I, I think the, the, uh, situation that we're in today is, is something like this as Jung would see it, that the Enlightenment, uh, d- did indeed free, free reason from, uh, the control of the churches and did bring about a certain, uh, more universal consensus politically and so forth, you know. But it left us with uh, a reason unconnected with its own depths. So there's a very ambivalent, uh, or uh, there's a critical position that sees the ambivalence in the gain that the Enlightenment may have made in freeing reason from religion or going to reason as a solution for religious conflicts. No doubt it advanced reason immensely but the the argument would be that in doing so it removed reason from its own depth Mm. so the situation that the the 21st century the the culture that that young wrote for would be this that we have a a more rational and then you might say enlightened culture under the dominance of of uh, reason but that uh, culture lacks a relationship to its own depths. And the problem for many is that they can't go back to a previous a previous religion because they see it, in many cases, rightfully so, uh, as a, an abomination to, to reason. But they can't really go forward either in so much as they can't get out of the, the superficiality of uh, a culture in which re- reason is dissociated from its depths. And I think a lot of what Jung was trying to, to do was to reconnect uh, cultural reason with the depths that are native to it, to reestablishing the connection between consciousness and the, the unconscious, and here we, of course, would value greatly dreams as uh, bearing their own symbols, effectively bearing their own revelation to individuals. And that as uh, as and if this consciousness spread, you, you could eventually uh, visualize a, a, a culture in which um, consciousness was uh, increasingly in touch with and in in conversation with its own depth through the unconscious and perhaps through the unconscious uh, major spokesperson the uh, the dream you know dreams would become personal personal revelations and the basis of a new sense of the sacred so there's a lot involved in that again like young was pretty embedded in history you know and and he does uh, like in the opening uh, pages of the red book he he talks about um how uh, he was removed from his own soul 
by his uh, commitment to these cultural values, that's a highly valued reason, and, and say science and so forth, that it abandoned the soul or abandoned a depth interiority. On page 42, you said, with Jung's concept of synchronicity, he took the position that each time and space-bound ego has access to the macrocosmic totality through the microcosm in the individual unconscious. This theory, both in alchemy and as formulated by Jung in his writings on synchronicity, presupposes a common ground or collective unconscious from which individual centers of consciousness emerge. Uh-huh. I was just hoping you could explain that a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, I, uh, there's a lot written on synchronicity, and, and uh, it really does get into Pauli and into uh, the physics, you know. Now, it could be because uh, I, I have uh, too much of a systematizing uh, mind, but, but I don't think that synchronicity is, is all that... Um, uh, like unusual or mm-hmm. uh, dramatic, so to speak, that, that I, I think his thinking on synchronicity is, is pretty continuous with with other major with the other major, you might say, foundational themes uh, in, in his um, psychology. Because if uh, Pauli was the person who actually came up with the the final. Uh, formulation and uh, if, if you look at the way that's drawn out I think it's in CW CW8 he he, uh, he has like like a square uh, and on like a baseball square and I say on second base or on one of the corners I think it's the high corner um, he, he has this kind of infinite energy and then uh, opposite I'd say at home plate He's got time and space, and then he has uh, a line going across, and say on on first base, or on on third base, we'll go to first, he he has causality, and then over on first base, as it's opposite, there's this uh, acausal reality that can't really be reduced to to any form of uh, causality. And I, I think a, a kind of a weakness in that is that he tends to reduce causality to efficient causality and, and then to play off this causal connecting principle like against it. So, uh, and, and uh, I, I think maybe he should, but there may be other forms of causality like exemplar causality that, that are compatible with what he's trying to describe in in meaningful uh, chance, but uh, without pursuing that too far, like I I think acausal connecting, uh, the acausal connecting principle is another way of of getting at the ground of being, you know, that that we, the uh, consciousness inheres in something that is uh, very much beyond consciousness, and you can you can describe that as the infinite or the unchangeable or, or however you want to uh, describe it. But that consciousness is, is natively related to this ground of being. 
and and this ground of being uh, as a natural reality uh, in the synchronistic event uh, exercises an influence on consciousness that cannot be described as uh, causal. It's not as if an agency outside of the psyche interfered with the psyche on on the on behalf say of the psyche it's not as if a transcendent god reached in and prevented a mountain climber from falling off the everest or something you mm-hmm. know okay so like there's no externality in this it it's much more like a power that is native to the psyche arranges against time and uh, space a ser- uh, an incident or a series of incidents that to anybody else would be pure chance, but to the person engaged in them is wholly transformative. And I think the key challenge in, in, on, excuse me, in understanding that is, is that the, the energy that is engaged in this uh, causal power is something to which we natively relate. It's in our constitution as humans. It's in the deeper level of, of the, the psyche. And, and it can, on occasion, I, see, I don't want to use the term intervene okay. in life, because that implies something other than, than life intervening in life. What, what I do, I try to formulate is that it, it can exercise some kind of an influence on the individual, and the way it does that indicates that it's beyond time and, and space. It can foresee coming events, and I've had dream, uh, dreams, one in particular, where uh, something that um, well, can go either way that, that had already happened that I was unaware of mm-hmm. uh, was being told to me in dreams, and, and uh, another situation where something that was yet to happen uh, was was told to me in, in, in a dream so that, uh, you know, it goes beyond space and time. The, the thing that's hard for us to grasp, living in a culture that is, is totally dependent on ideas of, of causality, like a, a pool cube moving a pool ball, we have difficulty understanding that our life in here is in, in a kind of totality that includes uh, powers that are beyond space and time, and yet powers that can dramatically make themselves known to us in the present through manipulating, again, or, or through ordering, or however you want to put it, uh, natural events uh, beyond us in a way that is compatible with pure chance but in a way that is totally uh, transformative to the person who undergoes them. I think it contributes to part of the modern temper temper that is seeing a connectedness between all things, you know? Right. So that an agent uh, anywhere has some kind of an effect on the totality, and vice versa, the totality can move into an individual agent. And, and transform that agent through external circumstances that look like chance but are 
powerfully meaningful. There is one more subject from the book that I wanted to touch on, and that's from page 66. Mm -hmm. You talk about the love affair with one's own psychic sexual counterpart. And I was wondering what you meant by that and why it was necessary. Well, I think that uh, Jung gives a priority uh, in his psychology to the uh, inner world. And uh, he assumed, uh, in, in some ways, uh, you could say that that, uh, uh, that that priority is sustained by an empirical basis in so much as men dream about women and women dream about men. Mm-hmm. So, so there is within each individual of both genders uh, an inner man, he calls it the animus, in a woman, and an inner woman, the anima, in uh, a man. And I, I, I had a book note with Daryl, no longer published. Like uh, it was, it it was an effort to get at celibacy, understood in those those terms, like being a priest and uh, into celibacy myself. But I, I think uh, you know, working as an analyst, uh, the individual's relationship. Uh, as a male to the inner woman and as a woman to the inner male mm-hmm. is profoundly important because uh, what uh, especially in the well I was going to say especially in the male but uh, the the relationship say to the anima in a man is basically determinative of of his relation or largely determinative of his relationship to woman women beyond himself so if that inner relationship to the inner woman is not uh, wholesome, life-giving, his relationship to women will not be either, you know? And, and the same with the, uh, with the animus. The woman's relationship to her inner male contributes a lot to how she relates to men uh, beyond herself. And if that relationship is, is not good, uh, her relationship to men will be bad. And it, it's in terms of the inner marriage, like the relationship of the uh, ego to the anima in the man and of the ego to the animus in the woman, mm-hmm. that energy moves from the great mother deeper in the unconscious than ego and anima uh, up into consciousness, you know? Like the... I was going to say the name of the game or the or the the, go, the goal, if you want to call it that. Uh, in uh, in Young's understanding of the psyche, is is to uh, access the energies of the great mother or the great goddess as the source of all energy. She's kind of an infinite uh, well of of uh, um, healing and creative energy, and the way that that uh, works is that. Uh, like in in the female, the the uh, energy will will be mediated to her consciousness through through her relationship to the animus, and the same is analogously true, or even more tr- tr- or even truer, I would say, mm-hmm. in the relationship of the male to the the anima. It's through the anima that uh, the energies of the great mother move into to consciousness 
and then w- once you move into the a- analytic uh, examination of how this works, if, if those relationships are good between ego and anima animus, there, there's a flow of energy into life that is uh, effectively the meaning of life, you know, to be in touch with your energies and uh, let those energies uh, move you into your external relationships and let them be present there. And what if the if the great mother is is uh, on her positive side, she she gives abundant energy. To, if, if but if not, what can happen is that that she'll um, the the basic pathological game is is to cut the woman or the man off from their inner counter gender, so so that uh, that flow of energy is diminished and where she really wins if they're cut out it would just be uh, like uh, an all-encompassing depression but as she does that too she she uh, she tries to uh, keep the her victim from the um, the shadow so that the, the woman can't uh, strengthen her femininity her, her ego and the mother then uh, moves to separate her from the animus, and and that can happen in a you know a variety of ways. If the mother's in charge of the animus, she'll invariably marry the woman to some negative side of her animus, or to the mother's own animus. Mm. In some cases, to the father, and uh, and destroy the woman through her. Uh, feminine weakness and the severance of her relationship to the inner male and the same thing happens with the male the the negative mother will slash his his masculinity he can't affirm himself and 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 manipulate the relationship to the anima so that the deeper energies of the great mother don't don't flow into to consciousness and and uh, this is often the inner drama that has to be faced. And uh, I think it's the power of the self through the dreams that ultimately uh, will work, say, to to move a negative mother into a, a a positive mother, and consequently into more assimilation of the shadow and a, a better relationship to the inner opposite. You know, the the male and the woman and the female in the man i i see that again and again as uh, as how the basic drama goes you know there's something else that that i'd like to ask you about being raised catholic myself one of the things that i noticed in your book is your mentioning of gods and goddesses mm-hmm. and i was wondering how is that okay in a monotheistic system for instance, because I grew up Catholic, I grew up going to Mass and reciting the Apostles' Creed, or is it, it's called the Nicene Creed, I think? Well, yeah, one of them is, yeah. Which, which goes, we believe in one God, the Father, uh-huh. the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So, we believe in one God, and then you're talking about gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that I talk about gods and goddesses uh, uh, to, to affirm that uh, all of deity is uh, a projection of of, hum- of the collective unkind of human interiority, 
And uh, like the goddess, for instance, might prevail in Eastern religions as as the ultimate power or a goddess kind of image, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas it it doesn't in uh, in the monotheisms by and large, uh, you know, all the research goes on into uh, the maternal and the feminine, so to speak, in in the Jewish tradition and uh, perhaps even in uh, Islam. But I, I think uh, you know, growing up Catholic and so forth, there 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 is a kind of a re- uh, reference to the the uh, goddess. In Mary, but as you may have been saying earlier on, if you take Mary as an individual uh, woman, it, it's a rather truncated uh, version of of femininity. There's an author who who talks about sides of the goddess, you know, and uh, there's the the the, the uh, one corner he's got the mother as giving birth, and uh, the other side the mother as as feeding. But at the bottom of that uh, rectangle, on one side, he has, I think, Circe as as the mother of, uh, you might say, divine divine madness or creative madness. And um, the name of the goddess he used to be around uh, uh, crossroads and death and so forth. The Christian idea of Mary, when by it, is understood not the great goddess, which which Young turns that into, but um, of, of an individual woman. And, and there, not all of the sides of the goddess are represented, like maternity and nourishment are, but, crea- but uh, a demonic creativity and death uh, are, are not. And even in the, the uh, answer to Job, where, where Young talks so highly, of the Annunciation, mm-hmm. he goes at the end of that away from Mary to the uh, sun goddess, I believe, and he he argues that both Mary and Jesus are are not fully real, in that she was not uh, uh, fully a mother, and that he was not fully a man, in, in that. He he was uh, a divinity walking as a man, and she was a kind of a divinity as giving birth. And and uh, he he turns to a Gnostic image, I think it's of the sun goddess, and believes that this is the uh, form of divinity of ultimate divinity that will prevail. And and what the sun goddess has that neither Mary nor Jesus had. Is this relationship or groundedness in nature, you know? Yes. That, uh, although even in there's a fairy tale and also a Catholic prayer that talks of, uh, of, of a woman as clothed in the, uh, you know, the moon and the stars and right. so forth. And it is an image of, it isn't, it's assumed, it's assimilated to, to Mary. Well, Young would actually feel that that side of, of Mary as incorporating the totality of nature may be the, uh, or hopefully would be, the conception of, of the uh, feminine and of the uh, mother that would prevail in the kind of mythic consciousness that he uh, hopes is on the way.
I find that interesting because, you know, he's so uh, glorious, uh, gives such a praise to the, the meaning of the assumption and all that involves as a divinization of what's not divinized, namely matter and, and body and, and uh, maternity and femininity. But then toward the end, when he comes to the conclusion of that work, he says that in effect neither Mary nor Jesus... Uh, are, are fully real, and that the 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 sun goddess and uh, her son are. I, I have to go back to the text to get explicit there, but uh, the thrust of his uh, uh, of his remarks is, is that uh, we, we need images of both the mother and son who are m- more fully at one with uh, with the totality of nature. Which he feels the the Jesus Mary conjunction is not, and I think the imagery there is is Gnostic, mm-hmm. and he makes the point that uh, people reflecting on it thought that that Gnostic material was simply a repetition of, of the more uh, orthodox received uh, received tradition, even though it's very early, probably be first and second century. But uh, he says this is not the case. It, it's really uh, a, a different kind of mythology that's being introduced here. So effectively, he's saying, as he elaborates greatly later on or in other places, that uh, Christianity initially was so one-sidedness, one-sided, that its reversal was implicit in its initiation, and that the laws of the psyche would, uh, well, you could say reverse or, or complete it as history moved on. The laws of the psyche working in history would, um, uh, would, would, would compensate the original myth. And, and perhaps this compensation is going on now. Say, we've talked about the quaternitarian cosmology he has that, uh, attempts to divinize the, the, the body, the feminine, and even the demonic. To wrap this up, Jung's critique of Christianity and its one-sidedness, you mentioned that he had a counter-myth that was all-encompassing and that it was needed as a corrective. Mm -hmm. And what would you say that was? Or what would you say that is? Well, well, in terms of the conversation we've had, I'd I'd relate it very much to the... uh, his move to a quaternitarian perspective. Uh, he would understand the goddess as, as the source of consciousness, like the unconscious would become uh, become seen as, as a profoundly maternal and creative power that gives birth to the ego, uh, and then the ego would perceive the opposites in life that have their origin in the unconscious, and be moved then to bring the opposites together uh, in in the future or or as a developmental uh, process or strategy, whatever. But that the unity of opposites cannot be done through conscious effort. He would say that only the self can do it. And the self does that 
again, you know, this is what we mean by the transcendent function, that, that uh, the self does it through suffering. The suffering of the opposites moves, in, uh, moves the ego into the unconscious and then hopefully out of it uh, to a consciousness in which the opposites uh, become uh, more closely uh, integrated in a, a kind of a harmony where previously there had been a, a disharmony so great that consciousness uh, lost its grip, so to speak, or was driven into the unconscious or taken into the unconscious. Yeah, I, I had actually skipped over this part in Chapter 5 uh, when you talk about the image of Christ dying in the agony of suspension between yes and no. Uh -huh. You said only the pain of bearing this contradiction can lead to that resurrected consciousness beyond good and evil. Yeah, right. Well, that's almost a sight from... Uh, if you read the passages that are cited there in the book, uh, you, you'd get the precise paragraphs. And, and Young does uh, talk about beyond good and evil in, in that context. It would be beyond good and evil as currently defined for one thing, like that Christianity is good as the best religion and therefore everything else is relatively relatively evil, you know? Right. It, it, it would be toward a consciousness that uh, would, would be able to discriminate the opposites and yet bring them together in consciousness. For, take this in the American political uh, situation like left and right are totally polarized and it's very, very difficult to conceive of a consciousness in which the uh, the left would appreciate the need for a certain conservatism and that the right would uh, perceive the need for growing beyond what is, you know? And uh, what Jung would be understanding, say, if you take that as a, an example of right and left, would be that a consciousness would emerge in, in which the, the conservative power would be respected, even as the conservatives themselves would become liberals and seek to move beyond it, you know? Right. That it's that kind of a thing that he envisages, I, I think. And you can, yeah, I mean, you can see a lot of that just right in your culture, you know. I mean, in our culture, not just American as opposed to Canadian, but in Western culture. Though hopefully it might be in Demise now. I feel like uh, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy to see what's going on in the uh, European culture, where where uh, countries seem to be laying aside their. Uh, their strict self-definition in order to open themselves uh, up collectively, cooperate in accepting uh, the refugees, you know. Thank you, Professor Dorley, for your time today and this wonderful book, The Illness That We Are, A Jungian Critique of Christianity. I hope everybody has a chance to look it over because I think we're in great need of it right now. Well, thank you. You're very kind, and I enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully we could talk again at some point. Yeah, I would enjoy that too, I think. I'd like to say another big thank you to Professor Dorley for his time today, and I'm looking forward to speaking with him again soon. 
Please visit the website speakingofjung.com for more information about this podcast, as well as links to all the books we mentioned today. There, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of the podcast, which are available to download for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. So with eternal gratitude to Liz Jefferson, Daryl Sharp, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Music